you call that spoken word poetry. I think that might be a first for this church to have that form of worship um, this morning. Excellent. Glory to God. That's it's hard. It's hard not to say glory to God when you hear and see something like that. And it was not just the power of the words, but it was the blessing to see God at work in this child of God. As she was speaking, I was thinking to myself, you know, when when we give our lives to Christ, we don't always know how Christ will be expressed in us and through us. And we express the living God in different ways with our personality, without our personality, the character God just does things. Well, we just saw something come out of Jaden Moss. It was a beautiful, artistic way to worship the Lord. And you wrote that. Spot on. Thank you. Appreciate that. Took a lot of courage. You weren't nervous at all, were you? No. So I, I saw her when her little hand went to, uh, to to move the pages on the phone. It was doing this. And I thought, help her, Lord. Help her. Not to scroll to some other words or something and start reading the wrong thing. Well, I appreciate uh, Corky's prayer. Um And if you are one that listens intently to what people have to say, he did say, and I quote, Lord, anoint him for this hour. You heard it, too. An hour. So I have an hour. God's at work here this morning. What kind of Um. Before I dive into our text this morning in Matthew chapter 28, just a reminder, this is the last Sunday before, well, this next Sunday to come, which will be our Thanksgiving share service. And so uh, there are there's still plenty of room for you to come and share what God's been doing in your life. This morning in adult Sunday school, John Rosima quoted John Piper, and if I wrote it down quickly enough, John Piper says when... Uh, who cannot be thankful when God gives us everything? And I thought, well, that's an easy way to put it. And it's true. God gives us everything. So there's plenty to be thankful for. I'm just asking you, search your heart. Ask the Lord, is there something? What can I share? Not that there's nothing to share, but out of the many things you've done, what can I share? Let me know as soon as possible that you'd like to have a few minutes, five minutes, or whatever it is that you need to share for our service so that we can Praise God together for what he's doing in our lives. And after hearing me for an hour today, you'll appreciate the break next week. Hearing other people speak a little more shortly. But as you know, we have been in the gospel of Matthew for quite some time now. But we are in the final chapter, chapter 28. And chapter 28 is not even really that long of a chapter. And in the first 10 verses of chapter 28... You have the resurrection. And then in the last five verses of chapter 28, you have the Great Commission. And so this chapter is absolutely packed with pivotal and monumental events, spiritual things. I mean, the the resurrection is the most important event that has ever happened in history. It has changed everything. That's why we're here today, because of what happened. And likewise... The Great Commission, the last words that Jesus said to his disciples while they were gathered to go and make disciples. 
that defines our lives even to this day. This is an incredible chapter. And then we have the verses. There's five verses sandwiched between the resurrection and the Great Commission. And I'm reading these verses and they're really, honestly, they're not doing anything for me. And I'm thinking, "Mm, nothing's like sparked. I didn't really, it's just like interesting information. So I thought, well, this is expository preaching. That's what I do. So I will read them to the congregation, but just not say anything about them. And they'll think, well, yeah, he went through the whole Bible. So, but then as I, I, I moved on to looking at the Great Commission, I started to research that and pray and study about that. And when I started to look at the Great Commission, the five, five verses before it began to make a little more sense. And I think I began to see the importance of why Matthew included these verses in his account of the life of Christ. So that's what we're going to unpack this morning. So if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, we're going to read verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. But what I want to do with these verses is first look at the story, because it is a story, and then look at the significance of the story. But first of all, the story, and I think it's a fitting word because we kind of have two stories within one story, or you might say two versions of the same story. You have the story of the truth. Sometimes we might say, I'm going to tell a story, I'm going to read a story, and it may be history, it may be actually verifiable uh, information. Or we might, when we're putting our kids to bed, tell them a bedtime story. And we all know that that's just fictitious and just something for entertainment. But what we have in these verses are the story of what really happened. But then we have the story of the story of what really didn't happen in this. And it begins in verse 11. While they were going. While who was going? And who is the they and where are they going? Well, you'll remember from last week when we looked at the first ten verses of the resurrection, there were a group of worshippers, ladies. The Mary and Mary and Joanna and Salome and maybe missing a few. But there was a group of ladies and they were coming to the tomb and they were coming to seek Jesus. And they were going to anoint him with more spices. It had been three days The body had been decaying. He had already been anointed. The body had been been decaying. And and we concluded that they were there to pay their respects. They were there to worship him. It was kind of like maybe a last-ditch effort to be as close as they could to this man that meant so much to him. But his body is disappearing quickly. And I love what the angel said to them when 
they entered into the tomb, he said, I know you're here to seek Jesus. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to be said about us? Especially coming from heaven. I know you're here to seek Jesus. They are spot on as far as their hearts. They didn't have it all figured out. They were there. to. They wanted Jesus. And if it was anointing him with spices, if it was just being near even to his dead body, that's how much he meant to them. So they came to the tomb and you know that when they arrived, um, they were trying to figure out how in the world are we going to get this big stone out of the way so we can take care of his dear body. But the stone was already moved out of the way. And there was an earthquake, second one in three days. The ground is shaking under the feet. The tomb is gone. And there's an angel, no less, sent from heaven who rolled the tomb away. Jesus was already gone. He invited them into the tomb. Look, his body's not here. I know you seek him, but you will not find him here. But still seek him and go and tell his disciples what you have seen. He's not here. He has risen. We looked at all of this last time. Mary Magdalene, she when she saw the tomb rolled away, she didn't even hang out long enough to get the message from the angel. She went straightway to tell the disciples, his body's gone. We got, we got an issue here. His body's gone. The other ladies hung out long enough to get the message from the angels, but then they needed to go and make haste to share the good news with the other disciples. He is risen. So that's the story of, of while they were going. So they were leaving the tomb. And then Mary Magdalene, of course, left first. She reached the disciples first. She tells them the body's missing. And we read in another gospel that uh, Peter and John run to see for themselves. They don't believe it. They don't believe what she said. You know, as a matter of fact, I think it's the gospel of Mark continually states that every time they're told about the resurrection, they don't really believe it, the disciples. So there, the ladies have gone, the second group of ladies has, have gone to tell the disciples, unbeknownst to them, Peter and John are already on the way to the tomb. Now, you will remember there are other characters in the story of the resurrection. And that's the Roman guards. Roman guards were placed there, of course, to guard the tomb. It's very important that the tomb be guarded so nobody steals the body and starts rumors that he has been resurrected because he said several times that on the third day, watch, on the third day, I am going to rise from the dead. So the Roman guards... The part that they play in the resurrection story is first they're guarding the tomb, I guess with their swords and their spears, shields maybe. Nobody's going to touch it. Then when the angel appears, the next thing you know, we find them flat on the ground. They're out, cold. They're like, the Bible says, like dead men. It's not kind of like half with it and half out of it. They are out. The reason they're out is because they experienced the same thing as the ladies experienced. The ground shook under their feet, too. Now, these are, I'm assuming, pretty tough Roman guys. You didn't just take the wimpiest guards to guard the tomb. You would want good guards there that knew what they were doing. And so they feel the ground shake. 
And then they see this flash from heaven and the Bible describes the angel like lightning and his, even his clothes are glowing white. I mean, this is a supernatural experience. What's taking place, the ground shaking. Here comes this thing from heaven, this being from heaven. He's bright. He's powerful. He rolls the stone away. They're out cold, just like that. And I'll say it again. It's the perfect role for me to play in the Easter play, the Roman Soldier, because at the very beginning, all I have to do is look scared and startled, lay out, and then everybody else does all the work for the Easter play, the resurrection. It's a great role for me. So what happens is what they experience, they don't really have a place for it. They don't have, I guess, the worldview. Now, they believe the Romans. They believe in gods and demigods and so forth and half gods. So, but they don't have a place for the reality of what just took place. When you see something this glorious come from heaven to earth and shake the ground. And these are tough guys. They're trained for battle. They're trained to kill. They're trained to carry out their mission. You don't, you don't fail. And yet when this angel shows up, they don't have a category for it. I'm guessing they're terrified and out they go. Maybe some just landed on their faces, face plant. Maybe some landed on their backs. Maybe some soiled their girdles. We don't know, but they are entirely out cold. Eventually, they come too. And the eventually is, and we don't know exactly when, but you'll remember that Mary left first, then the other ladies are leaving, and then the disciples are coming. So sometime, that's the while they were going, where Matthew picks up the chronology again. Sometime where people are just running back and forth to tell the news, the soldiers come to, they gather themselves up, and they go, they go into the city as well. Whether they crossed paths with anybody, we do not know. But they have something. They have news. They experience the same kind of event that the ladies experienced. They could not withstand the glory in which they were in the presence of. Now, I would also like to add that as soldiers, I'm pretty sure that the chief priest would have said, look, guard the tomb. But on the third day in particular, if anything's going to happen, it's probably going to be the third day. So it's very possible they were on high alert to begin with. And not to mention, I don't know what it was like in that day, but this is a place where people were buried. So I guess it's what we would call a cemetery. There were holes in the rock. And a lot of times when you're in a cemetery, you're kind of on high alert anyway, right? Because, I mean, every little sound, who's that? And you start seeing figures and stuff. And I don't know if they were superstitious, but it's, it's just kind of creepy there. So all of this happens probably at the worst moment of all. You know, it's just about ready to get daylight. This day's, the new day's coming. It's going to be light soon. And they are introduced to the power of God in a way that they just can't contain it. It's supernatural. What do you do with that? So the women are rushing. Everybody's rushing in different directions to the tomb, away from the tomb, to the city, and they have some explaining to do because they were given a charge. They were given direct order. 
And so they have some explaining to do as far as why there is no body in the tomb now. Where do they go? They go to the chief priests. Well, why do they go to the priests instead of Pilate, who's really in charge of them, in charge of the military? Well, you'll recall that it was the chief priests' idea to even post guards to begin with. They were the ones that just wanted to make sure Jesus wasn't just dead, but every memory, there was no hope of any kind of faith or any kind of followers. They didn't want rumors to spread or anything. The disciples didn't think much about the resurrection. They didn't anticipate it. But the chief priests were smart enough to have picked up on Jesus' word and say, you know, just in case, we need to probably post somebody here. We want to post guards in a way that there's absolutely no way anybody could come and say the body's gone after all. Because then that would cause hope. And they told Pilate, look, if you think this is a mess, if his body isn't found or if his body is missing, we have an even bigger mess on our hands. So Pilate says, look, I get it. Take whatever you need. Take whatever guard you need to secure the tomb. So that's their mission. That's the plan. They need to take them. Seal it. Put a big stone in front of it. Get however many guards you need. So they were, in a sense, under the chief priest's orders, right? Pilate just said, here, you, you tell them what to do. So they come back and they report their story to Pilate. You know, and this is, they're explaining why they kind of are empty-handed, so to speak. And they tell them the truth. I'm sure they tell them about the, it says, uh, Matthew says, they told them what happened. The events, and we know what happened because we've already read about it. The ground shook and an angel came. So they're telling the chief priestess. And here they are, we were sent to, to guard the tomb. But he's gone. We were out. We were incapacitated. You know, give me flesh and blood to fight. And I'm ready for that. I can do that. We would have guarded it with our lives. But what, what do you do with the supernatural? I mean, he didn't even touch us and we were out. He didn't even lay a finger on us. He didn't even have weapons. We were just out. We couldn't do anything. We weren't even players in this. You, you quickly understand your mortality when you're, when you're presented with the power of immortality. And that's what happened to them. You know, sometimes we get frustrated ourselves and God gives us tasks that are of the supernatural realm. And you don't, fight, you don't fight them with flesh and blood. Now, if it was a flesh and blood kind of thing, who knows what would have happened. But it wasn't at all. They were overtaken by the supernatural. What, what can you even possibly do about that? Technically speaking, they actually have a pretty good excuse for why the body's gone. I mean... How do you fight an angel from heaven? You're powerless under this kind of thing. So they were out. By the way, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, wouldn't it be curious, wouldn't it be neat if any of these soldiers were among the group of soldiers that, uh, I think it's in chapter 26, when they went to seize Jesus in the garden. You remember what happened? It was the same kind of little encounter where, you know, they're... Where's Jesus? Where is he? We're here to get Jesus. We're going to arrest him and take him back. And he says, I am he. And then you know, the, everybody just like steps back. It's just something about that they came to this awareness of, whoa, what are we going to do with this? It's that, it's that supernatural confrontation that 
we often are privy to when we begin to open our eyes to the things of God. But wouldn't it be curious if if this happened to if any of these were the same soldiers? And I know that most of those guards were probably temple guards, but there could have been some Romans. Transcendent. Put them on the black backs. But they are in a predicament. When your soldier under Roman orders, if you fail on your mission, it very likely could mean death. You get you get orders and you do them or you die. So they're in a predicament. It's it's not a stretch to say that their lives are in danger. But they don't come back with lies. They actually tell the truth. Here's what happened. Now let's look at the Jewish leader's response. They t- listen to the guards. I'm sure their imaginations are running. They're picturing how all this has taken place. How ironic that they would be hearing the story. Now, did the guards say Jesus rose from the dead? I, I, I don't know. I'm sure they said his body was gone and they looked, they saw the linens and it, it wasn't a rough, you know, a stealing kind of thing. The linens were nice and neatly folded and so forth. Did they actually come back and say, he must have walked out of tomb? I don't know what they said. But they told the events from their perspective as it happened. And how ironic that the, they're telling their story about the resurrection while the disciples and other worshipers are hearing the same kind of story about at the same time. Eventually, the disciples believe it. Not so the Jewish leaders. You know, earlier in the week, they had shouted at Jesus as he hung on the cross. Yeah, just deliver yourself off the cross and we'll believe. Just come on down from the cross. We'll believe in you then. And now we have an even grander event that they do not deny. And yet they still do not believe. They don't run to the tomb and investigate. You don't say. Empty. Roll away. An angel. We better go and look at the facts here to see if this is true. You would think as important of an event as this is, even to their own well-being, that they would have run to the tomb and checked it all out, maybe found a way to explain it away by going and looking at the actual facts. They, they didn't go because they don't need any more truth. They don't need any more evidence. They've already decided what they believe. And they do not believe in Christ. They absolutely refuse to believe in Jesus as the Messiah sent from God to establish His kingdom. Their minds are already made up. You ever meet anybody like that? Have you ever been that person? It doesn't matter what a Christian might come and say to you. and It doesn't matter the evidence that is right before your very eyes. Your mind's already made up. You're not looking for truth. You just want to live in your little lie. And that's where these Jewish leaders are. They are very content just to live in their false world with their false gospel under their lie. So this does not bring them. They're shocked and they spring into action, but not the action that brings repentance. How sad. Paul tells us that the God of this world can blind our eyes so that 
even though the kingdom of God is all around us and might even cause our hairs to raise and get goosebumps because you know this has got to be something out of this world or blinders of sin prevent us from seeing what God is doing and desires to do, perhaps even in our own lives. And make no mistake, God is at work. And you don't always have these kind of events, but God is at work. And he uses supernatural events and the unexplainable things in our lives to get our attention. I remember before I became a Christian, I was a good driver except when I was drinking. Then lines blurred and all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, it happened too much. And I don't mean to make a joke out of it because it was foolish. And it gives me the shivers to this day because I could have killed somebody and almost did. But anyway, in the accidents that I was exposed to, I walk away from vehicles and I look at the mangled vehicle and I think to myself, how am I alive? And God uses those kind of things to get our attention. Because that did point me to, there's got to be somebody out there looking after me while there is. And God uses all these things. And sometimes we, we bow the knee to the truth. And other times we just explain it away or we don't even want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They spring into action. You know what their fear is? Not that, oh, it's true or I need to repent or get excited. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. This is God's son. The kingdom has been established. They spring into action to guard what they have, their power. And so they convene as a Sanhedrin. These are the official leaders of the, the nation. They spring into action and they have this. They take counsel. That's what elders, we read all about the Old Testament. That's what elders do. They're smart, right? They've got wisdom. They have gray hair. They've got experience. And they come in and they make, they throw the, the, the facts around and they come up with a conclusion. That's what they do. And they come up with an official conclusion of, here's what we want you to do. We've considered your story. We want you to lie. That's how they plan to get out of this. They weren't moved to repentance. They were moved to only tighten the grip of the power that they had in this world. You know, it reminds me, as I read and I think about this dynamic, it reminds me of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was a great man. And God called him to this great prophetic ministry and it was fruitful and people were coming by the dozens and they were repenting to prepare themselves for the Messiah. This was a very big, fruitful, dynamic ministry. But when Christ shows up, what does John know that he has to do as a worshiper of God? You know what? I'm in the spotlight and God is blessing my ministry, but it's time for me to step out. Behold the Lamb of God. And he says, I must decrease so that he can increase. He knew his place because his heart was converted. But look at the unconverted heart. Oh, no, this is an I'm not going to decrease. He's not going to rob me. Any kind of rumor is not going to rob me from the power that I possess in this world. I'm going to continue to increase. I will decrease him. I will lie about this. Look at the difference. 
between a converted soul that just wants to worship God and obey God and those that cling to the things of the world. I'm not giving way to the king. He's not getting anything that I have. Not the power, whatever it is in our lives. There's a difference between a soul that really desires God and a soul that denies him and wants nothing because they think everything I have is right here in my grasp already. Make way for the king or not. How about our own hearts? Like, where, where do we stand as we think about all the things that happen in our lives? Are we making way for the king because he has a voice? He has lots to say about life and how we ought to live it and who we ought to be worshiping and what we should do with all the things that he's blessed us with. Do we have that attitude where, you know what, you're right, I just need to, all this worldly stuff I'm clinging to, I need to get rid of this so I can have more of you and that you can increase. What a, what a con, stark contrast. So they're shocked, but not to repentance. They have an official meeting and they come to what I'll say a twofold conclusion. First of all, they're going to bribe the soldiers. We've got to make it worth their while because we're going to ask them to lie. We're not going to give them money to keep their mouths shut. So they don't say, look, here's some money. We're making it worth your while. If anybody asks you what happened, make a pact among yourselves. Doesn't leave this room. Don't tell them. Shrug your shoulders. Then nobody will know. You can't prove it one way or the other. No, they give them money. So they will actually tell a false story of what happened. And they got to make it worth their money. Their while. So that's their first that's their first judgment or decision that they come together as a Sanhedrin, the leaders of the nation. Let's pay them, pay them off, tell them to lie after all they were there. And the second thing is, and by the way, guys, we got your back. Because we know that you're in a predicament and you could be killed for failing in your mission. Uh, and, you know, when you tell this lie, it's not going to put you in the best of life. But look, we're, we got your back. You won't take heat from it. If I got to bribe Pilate, you know, we got some power moves here. If I got to bribe Pilate, whatever, we'll get all those authorities off your back so that the scripture says they use that word anxiety. So you don't have to live in anxiety. Like, when is this going to catch up to me? Who's going to find out? When, when are the authorities going to come knocking on my door and say, you failed your mission and you've got a, uh, a noose waiting for you? So they just lay it out for them. Look, here's your money. You have wealth from here on out. And we're going to keep everybody off your back. It doesn't get any better than this. All you have to do is tell the story just like we tell you to tell the story. And that's what the Sanhedrin agreed was the best way to handle the resurrection. That's what the Roman guards by the way, how many guards were standing at the tomb? Now, in my mind, I don't know why, but I've always pictured two. Uh, I don't know if there's substance to that, if I read it, but I think I saw it in a children's Bible some, some years ago. And it stuck in my head. I don't know for sure. But we don't know how many guards it was, but it was just take the guards, however many you need. Like a guard could be as many as 50. Some scholars say, oh, there's 50 men. Some say, no, it's just a couple dozen. We, we don't know, but it was, here's how many were there. Enough so that the Jewish leaders could sleep well at night knowing the tomb is well guarded. There's absolutely no way anything's going to happen to the body. 
So however many that takes, that's how many were there. So that's the story. That's how things went down in the story within the story. What does all of this mean? These verses are found only in Matthew's gospel. I looked at the others and there's nothing in there. What they start reporting about is the happy things. He's risen from the dead. And then he's making all of these appearances to people. And it's just grand. He's meeting, he's eating breakfast with them and so forth. And then they talk about the Great Commission. And I read these verses and I thought, you know, it was honestly, it was kind of a downer because Matthew, page after page, has really been showing us just how evil humanity, but in particular, the people of God, the Jewish leaders were. I mean, they lied, they cheated, and, and we're coming up to the, the crucifixion. We're thinking, how low will they stoop? They did everything illegal while giving a pretense of being clean and righteous and holy and glowing like the angels' clothes. And I really didn't want to hear about this stuff anymore. I wanted to just live in the bliss of the resurrection. And yet, Matthew alone tells us more dirt. I think, why? It's in there for a reason. God inspired him to do it, not the others. What's the significance of this? Well, I believe it's to show the gospel readers the depravity of those that were leading the nation of Israel. Matthew does that so well. It's like, I don't even want to read about it anymore. But you will recall that Jesus, one of his teachings, and all of this has been brewing, one of his teachings was that the time will come when the kingdom will be taken away from God's people and given to another that will bear fruit. This was a very obvious teaching. As a matter of fact, he shared it in chapter 21 with his disciples, but also the Jewish leaders were, that, were there. And he told that parable, parable about the tenants, remember? He said, this, this master, he bought a vineyard and he placed his tenants there. But when it was time to come and get his fruit, the proceeds, they wouldn't give it to him. He sent his servants to get the fruit and they wouldn't give it to him. They killed his servants, so he sent more servants and they killed them. And so finally the master sends a son of his household to go and collect what is his. And they kill him as well. And Jesus asked the Jewish leaders, what do you think that master's going to do? And they, oh, he's going to get those wretches. He's going to get those wretches and, and take them out of the vineyard and give it to somebody who will take care of it and give him the fruit that he's looking for. And Jesus actually interprets this parable in 21.43. After he tells, he says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. They feared man. Another, uh, another telling thing about sin. Look at the, their reaction is always the fear of man. How will this affect my control over man? There's things that they hide. There's things that they lie about. It's all about their control over the people that they are supposed to be ruling. 
I think, you know, we get to this point and you think, is it any wonder that God does what he does? And, and for a season of time, Romans tells us, the kingdom is taken away and given to the Gentiles. That's how obstinate and cold, when you have a people that are supposed to be in charge of the kingdom of God on earth that are cold-hearted and obstinate and don't want anything really to do with God, but are clinging to the things of the world, is it any wonder that great things happened and the eyes and the hearts of the Gentiles were open and began to bear fruit? Not to say that there weren't Jews that came to Christ or always Jews that come to Christ. But even to this day, there's a blindness, there's a hardness of heart in this. So I think that's the, the significance of perhaps why Matthew includes this. And there's another thing in here that really caught my attention. And that's the final words when Matthew's telling the story and then he says, to this day. So in other words, this is what they told the Roman soldiers, if anybody asked, and of course it's what the Jewish leaders had to make public, make a public statement, here's what happened, they fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. Now Matthew wrote his gospel about 30 years after this event took place. And so 30 years later, in other words, the lie stuck. This is what the public Jewish opinion of, well, what happened to Jesus' body was. The lie stuck. Oh, the disciples stole it. Well, how'd they get past the guards? Oh, they fell asleep. 30 years later, that's what the belief was. As a matter of fact, Justin Martyr, a church father in 150, AD 150, he writes about the same thing. He says it's the common opinion of the Jews as far as what happened to Jesus' body. It was stolen. So over 100 years later, that lie stuck. It, it was the... The, the false gospel of the day regarding Christ and what to believe about this guy that came to be from God, that came to be established a kingdom from God. Yeah, he died and his body was stolen. But what I want to do with, these, with the rest of my hour is <clears throat> just think through this a little bit in, in application. First of all, it, it's... It's amusing to me that the, that the fact that the Jewish leaders went to such effort to absolutely stifle the resurrection, that it's really their efforts to stifle it that make it even more believable. Because they did everything humanly possible to keep it from happening or from the rumor of it from happening. See, their efforts actually promote the resurrection. Because how, how are you going to believe this really? If you listen to the lie and think it through thoroughly, that's not really even a believable lie. So you're telling me the disciples that were pretty much had turned into cowards by this point, they were really scared and they scattered when Jesus was taken. You know, they, they put some the best foot forward at first, but it's all gone now and they're just kind of huddled there and hiding. They're confused. And you're going to tell me that they muscled up the courage to take on this Roman guard so they can steal the body? That's one thing. Where did the courage come from? The second thing is, why would they even have it? You're telling me they risked their lives to take a body to spread a lie that's not even true, that he is alive, but he's dead? So they're risking their lives to, to believe in something that didn't happen? And then you come to the point where you say, look, the disciples took his body 
the guard said, when we were asleep. Now, I don't know how you sleep, but I sleep like this. My eyes are closed. Now, there's some people that sleep with their eyes open, but they still can't see anything I've checked. It's really creepy. I checked one time. They're out. So even if your eyes, they're asleep. So in other words, what you're saying is you were sound asleep and the disciples snuck in there and they took the body. How do you know it was the disciples? How do you know what happened if you're asleep? You get it? If you just think about the lie, there's, and I could mention so many things in here that just don't line, line up. Even the story is incriminating. There's every reason. The apostle, that's why the Apostle Paul in Corinthians makes this bold, scary statement. Look, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we have nothing. You know what he does is he hinges the event on evidence and history. Not just, well, look, if you guys just decide to believe in it, it will be true. It's none of that heart stuff. It's facts and evidence, and they're all there. We either embrace them or we do not, we deny them. So the other thing that I'll close with, so to this day, now remember, the next words are the Great Commission where Jesus says, go and make disciples. So if Matthew takes that and the disciples take that great commission 30 years later, what are they confronted with with the Jewish people when they go to try to teach them to observe everything I have commanded you? Well, we don't really... What do you mean Jesus believe in Jesus? He's dead. His body was stolen. It's all, it was all a lie. So that was their challenge. One of their challenges of the day was, well, then how do I make a disciple out of somebody who denies Jesus because they believe a lie? Look, there are still lies about Jesus today. And our generations, and there's several of them represented here, we have the same tasks, but we have different lies. But the Great Commission goes forth no matter what the culture the conditional mindset, no matter what lies they're believing about Jesus. And there's lots of lies out there today. It is still the believer's responsibility to find a way to observe and to find a way into people's hearts to present the gospel. It's God's business as to what kind of transformation takes place. But it is our job, and we're, we're not even in the Great Commission, but just so you know, to make disciples. That's our uh, part of our identity we'll get into that next time. Where did that come from? All of a sudden he's been teaching about the kingdom and then his like last words are make disciples. Where did that come from? Well, we'll see. So what are the challenges that we face in our generation? So one of mine is, uh, my hour's not up yet, I don't think. I'm really, I'm not, I don't keep time to be honest with you. I just, when I'm finished, I'm finished. But anyway, so you think about what is my challenge as I think about what is my challenge. So I'm a baby boomer. And baby boomers think logically. Now, I'm actually on the tail end, like the last year to be called a baby boomer. So I just made it in to the baby boomer generation. We think, we were taught and we think more logically and evidence, you know, that's how you win us. Uh, So um, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, it was very influential because people were like, well, I didn't know. I didn't, my goodness. And Kevin shared about uh, the, the uh, veracity or the reliability of the New Testament. Look, they're facts. People look into this. It's not just like, here, just believe it. It's been meticulously preserved. 
So, but then you have the millennials. And I know I say that like in a negative term and I shouldn't. It's like the millennials. But the millennials are a big challenge to me because I like to operate in the facts and logic and reason. Look, let me just show you the facts. And then, but they don't really care that much about the facts as much as I do. So I, what do you do with that? What do you do? It worked with all these other people, and now I'm up against a, a generation that it's not really working with. So that's my personal challenge, and of course some of yours as well. How do I reach? So what we do is we start looking for the image of God. How is the image of God being portrayed in this generation or this people? You see it everywhere, right? Because we're all created in the image of God. What are they doing? Well, millennials are very relational. And they will, you know, facts, yeah, but relationship, you can win a heart with relationship. Sometimes even the facts don't matter, but the authenticity and the relationships. It's just kind of scratching the surface of then, how do I use that to make a disciple? Or at least to where they've heard the truth so a seed can be planted. And then God has the rest. So to this very day, that was Matthew's challenge. What is our challenge today? Are we making disciples? What do people believe about Jesus today? And how are we winning them for Christ? May God bless the preaching of his word.